if you have not fixed the, the, the supply issues at all, production is not nowhere close to where it was for many of the metals and many of the uh, other uh, energy commodities and so forth, nowhere close to where it was at prior peaks. We're nowhere close in terms of capital spending as well. So how do we, you know, if we're not fixing those fundamental problems, how in the world everything else in terms of inflation will be resolved in the next five to 10 years? Well, it's probably not going to get resolved. And so... Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Dixon Buchanan. I'll be hosting today's episode along with the founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Wiener. We're very pleased to welcome onto the show today, Tavi Costa. Tavi is the partner and portfolio manager of Prescat Capital, a global macro-focused asset management firm. Since 2013, Tavi has been responsible for developing Prescat's macro models, which contribute to their thematic investment process. Tavi, we are very glad to have you on the show today. Welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. Great. So... Uh, just by way of introduction, Tavi, we know from your Twitter feed that your macro game is rock solid. So this is definitely going to be a macro themed episode today. Um, what we like to do on the show is take you know a bit of a deeper dive into some of those headlines that you read. So uh, I'll, I'll open it up to you and Keith to explore any of the topics that may be of interest to you. But why don't we start with, uh, I'd love for you to give our listeners just a little bit of your, you know, your hot takes on where we are uh, economically right now, where's the US and where uh, are, do you think we're headed? Well, I've been really thinking about this because it, it, in a way there's a, a difference between folks that believe we're in the mid cycle slowdown and other folks that believe that perhaps we're entering a recessionary environment. I, I tend to believe, or I, I would think that we are more in a recessionary camp than the other way around. but. My point is every mid-cycle environment that we've had in the past was actually marked by a pause in, 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 in Fed rate hikes, not only that, but a, a change, a, a total reversal from policy stance from, uh, from the Federal Reserve and, and even uh, fiscal stimulus, depending on the time. And I'm not sure we're seeing much of that today. Uh, we have you know, a real tightening of policies in an environment that is very uh, severely damaged already. When you look at many different fronts, you can look at not only equity markets have been down significantly, and now what we think it's more of a bear market rally, um, but also you're starting to see some issues on leading indicators. So ISM manufacturing, um, you have the PMIs now at lowest levels since global financial crisis and uh, the COVID recession. So those are all indicators that lead to a conclusion that perhaps we're going to see a severe downturn that in line with that, you would think that a Federal Reserve will become more supportive, but it, it is not. And so um, I am of the view that we're going to see a lot more pain ahead uh, in the economy here in the U.S., and uh, which is going to lead to a lot of opportunities at the same time, especially in owning tangible assets versus financial assets, in my view. You know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned um, the Fed not changing their policy stance. 
Um, I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago in Vienna and I used the German term, which is used in chess all around the world, which is, um, uh, they trained me how to say it in German, Zugzwang, which is, uh, in English, I guess, Zugzwang, um, which is, any you have to make a move and any move you make is a bad one. Yeah. Does the Fed continue to try to combat inflation, so-called, or does the Fed try to be more accommodative? And either way, you can see the political and economic forces that would tend to say, don't do that. Um, kind of an interesting position they, they find themselves in. It's certainly a conundrum in my view. And it's, you know, right now we've had the inflation issue heat up and there were so many leading indicators at the time in 2021, really pointing to the direction we're going to see higher prices of goods and services. Um, and one of them was commodity markets. And so, but, but the Federal Reserve didn't react to that. And now it's reacting very late in the game. And it has to, it doesn't have an option, right? I mean, interest rates where inflation is today, even if it's decelerating from where it was in March, which probably is, um, it still is well above where interest rates are. And so you, you're supposed to have some sort of adjustment. The issue is that delta, that change in, in policy stance is happening at a time when you're seeing severe economic downturn that was not caused by a reversal in policy, was caused by something else, was caused by the economy. Um, first of all, I think there's a lot of issues, right? I mean, first of all, you have this large increase in savings caused by fiscal stimulus that created an economic growth in 2021 that we're probably never going to see before. Uh, savings rate shot up to 30% or 35% disposable income and went all the way lower below 5% or about 5% today, which is near historical lows. And so there's not a lot of cash in the sidelines like we saw in 2021. And, and so there's not much of an impulse when it comes to uh, economic growth going forward. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm quite worried about uh, those changes at a time when I think the consumption of households is about to fall off a cliff. Why do I think that? Because most uh, consumers are being squeezed in general. They're being squeezed by historical elevated levels of cost of living. You have mortgage rates being way higher than they were two, three years ago, 10, you know, depending on the case where you live, even a lot longer than that. <clears throat> and so... You got the wages and salaries growth. It is growing, but not growing at the same pace of inflation. Um, so the consumer is getting squeezed from many fronts. It's hard to believe that that's not going to wait on, on, on demand at some point. And so uh, at a time when monetary tightening has a lag, and so it should cause some issues between six to 12 months from now, we've been maybe three months in already on, on this policy stance. And so you know, you would expect that six to 12 months, we would see some sort of uh, negative uh, impact from, from this. And so I'm, I don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, look at the yield curve inversions, right? I mean, I, I looked at the percentage of inversions because I think that's the most important way to look at. It's not one or two or three spreads that we like to look at, even though they're all interesting. But when you get to this level right now, we're close to 50% of the yield curve is inverted, meaning if you look at all possible spreads in the yield curve, 50% of them are inverted. When you get to that level of 75%, which we could see it in, in a 10% in decline in equity markets that could happen. Um, now you have empirically a sign where that we see, at least in our work, every single time we've seen a downturn. And so 
I think we're going to see that. And so there's a lot of ways to play those, those changes in markets right now. And one of them is, I think, is, is looking for companies that will get squeezed by margins going forward through this reduction of consumption that we may see in the future. I had uh, two things that would add to that one kind of funny. Um, I think it was last Thursday, I took a look at the graph of the yield curve. That's a very strange beast with some weird you know, kind of ripples in it. And I posted it to Twitter and I said, what kind of strange animal is this? Somebody turned it sideways and, and kind, of, kind of posted a picture. Was it Jay Powell or somebody? And it was like, it was his face and nose was the prominent feature on it. It was like, I could sort of see the resemblance. Um, the other thing I was gonna say, which uh, supports uh, what, what you're saying, Tavi, is my wife went to um, uh, a shopping mall uh, over the weekend and uh, unprompted, she, you know, she came back and said that it seemed like all the stores that cater to disposable income for children uh, are basically closed or out of, you know, going out of business or whatever. And I said, yeah, that makes sense, right? If this consumer is going to be squeezed and have to pull back, what are they going to cancel first? You know, the car payment, the credit card, the cell phone bill, or $20 a week allowance for their teenage daughter to go to, um, you know, whatever and buy costume jewelry. And that's the one that's, um, you know, getting squeezed uh, at the moment, at least at that particular mall on, on this particular weekend. Yeah, and you can look at the other side of this too. I mean, the, the, the question I get often is, well, but how can you say you're entering a recessionary environment when you have labor markets uh, as strong as they are? Well, that, that's all lagging indicators in the first place. Yeah. And non-farm payrolls, I mean, I put a, a chart on this because I thought it was interesting. Now we've had a over 500K non-farm payrolls print in the last week. And you know that's, that's out of the normal. I mean, that's an outlier sort of a print and so oh, just just let me challenge you do you think that's going to be revised downward well probably and i <laughs> I, I don't doubt that at all I, I probably will but even even if it is let's just let's just maybe uh think that this is actually a, a an accurate a measurement right now and if it is um even back in the during the tech bubble we've had right at march of 2000 which was exactly the peak of the tech bubble um we had a print that it was very, very close to 500K increase in on-farm payrolls too. And so those are all lagging indicators. And I'm not sure why, you know, even the Fed pays so much attention to unemployment rates in the first place and things like that, when I think you should be paying attention to initial jobless claims that are rising recently, um, you know, got part-time jobs that are starting to show some issues, uh, continuing jobless claims also showing some issues. Job openings are starting to change significantly on the margin, even though they're coming from, from historical levels, but you've got to pay attention to that. And so, you know, where are we going to be if, let's say, unemployment rates are at 6 7%, you know, 12 months from now, with inflation staying at, um, call it 6% year over year on the CPI? I mean, that's going to be, that's going to be a brutal environment for, for a policymaker. I remember um, as a uh, as a kid in the late 1970s, um, every day on the nightly news they talked about inflation and unemployment, and they coined a term that I don't think I heard since then called the misery index, which yeah. was CPI plus unemployment. Yeah, and um, that maybe if I have to make a macro prediction, it would be that the that term could be uh, coming back into vogue. 
Actually, Bloom, Bloomberg picked it up recently. Bloomberg just really? put out, yeah, put out a story saying that the misery index was rising. So misery index. I looked into that quite a lot, actually. And, and the interesting thing about the spike in misery index usually is linked to just one of those variables rather than both together. And, um, and you're right, maybe this time is going to be the two happen at the same time. And, uh, you know, there's a, if you, if you just look at the charts of, of inflation and, and unemployment rates back in the seventies, you can see the inflation had three waves, right? I think everybody knows that you got the late sixties and early seventies, first wave, the second wave was kind of mid seventies, 73, 74. Then you got the inflationary recession and then you got the late seventies. Uh, inflationary wave. Well, that those three waves are now more popular. People know about it. What what people don't talk about is the three waves of unemployment rate that actually follow each of those waves of inflation with a two year lag. So after you get up to about five percent of inflation, usually after two years of still running those levels of inflation, usually that leads to higher unemployment. At least it did back in those in those times. And so I would think that that actually has a lot of it would make a lot of sense to me if we see, you know, again, six to nine months, we start to see some real deterioration in labor markets. It will look, actually look very similar to the 70s and in, 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 uh, uh, analogs as an analog. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I do think this is going to probably be the case. You know, CEO confidence is, is collapsing right now. And, and, you know, that's those are the guys that make up the, the, the decisions of, of employing folks or not. And so. You know, there's a lot of leading indicators to labor markets that prove that perhaps we're going to see some real, at least some real slowdown, if not a major contraction in, in, in growth of uh, employment plans and so forth. And of course, the other uh, difference between now and the 1970s is we're coming off of one really long, I'm pretty sure this is by a, a record by a large margin, boom, following 2009, it's been one continuous boom effectively. 2009 to 2000, call it early 22. Uh, you know, what is that? Um, you know, 12 years, 13 years of boom. And surely there are a lot of um, imbalances, a lot of malinvestment that's been created, zombie corporations, all sorts of weird creatures of the night, uh, you know, lurking that all of that somehow has to get, um, you know, resolved. Um, you know, how the Fed is going to try to resolve that. I saw somebody, I don't know if Jay Powell actually said this, if this was just commentary. How is Jay Powell going to simultaneously uh, liquidate all the zombie corporations and then make it so that everyone else is fine? Like, how do you do like targeted, you know, you know, laser focused zaps here and there while not, not hitting anybody else or anything else? And of course, that's so the venture capitalists right now, actually, for a couple of months, have been sounding the alarm that um, VC-backed companies, um, you know, may not be able to raise any more money. It'll certainly be, if they can, it'll be much harder uh, at more pressed valuations, et cetera, et cetera. And they're telling the portfolio companies get to cash flow positive, if at all possible. Um, so it isn't just it isn't just the zombies that are that are roaming around, you know, brainless. It's uh, you know, capital is starving everybody at the uh, at the margin. Look, the the question you're asking, you know, about the Federal Reserve dealing with the situation is is perhaps the most critical question you need to be asking if you're an investor today. And unfortunately, you know, majority of folks end up 
really focusing on what is the Fed going to do in the second, in, in the next meeting or the, the following meeting and so forth. And, or when is gold going to bottom and things like that, which I love those questions that just really don't have the crystal ball to answer those. But I think one thing that we can visualize and, and have a plan for is that this is not the seventies, as you just pointed out, it's not the forties and, and it's very unique. What's going on in a sense of, it is a, you know, we got the government debt problem of, of the 40s. We got the inflation of the 70s and maybe even more entrenched in the 70s um, and maybe even bigger issues with natural resources, uh, capex uh, cycles and so forth. And then you have this, what you just mentioned, which is the, the speculative environment that we saw back in the late 90s and late 20s and so forth. And so you know, how do you manage to prevent inflation from infiltrating in the system when you have, you know, all those macro imbalances becoming true political constraints uh, to any sort of policymaking? And so, you know, while I think that the Fed could tighten a lot more here from here uh, still, um, how much more can they do in, in a real uh, you know, call it in the next uh, decade or so, not much. You know, we all know that if the economy really crumbles here and then we see equity markets, you know, NASDAQ back down to 40% or so, it was down 35%, let's just say 40 plus percent. And you start seeing the overall equity market down, you know, 30 plus percent, the Fed is going to have to change their, their, their tone. I mean, there, it's just no, no way around that. So, um, and inflation doesn't care about that. I mean, it, it, the, the issues that we're seeing is structurally in natural resources is just so severe and it will take so much time to, uh, to reverse those, those, those trends in, in CapEx that will, I think, I think people are underestimating the, uh, this uh, inflationary cycle that we might be entering. I was going to say, and to, to uh, add one more, straw to that camel's back as if it needed any more straws. Um, <laughs> but by hiking the interest rate, they hike the hurdle that everybody has to get on investing in natural resources. So if natural resources, resources are already starved for CapEx, and then you hike the Fed funds rate from essentially zero to you know pick your number. Some people think it should be 8% or something like that, yeah. which there's no way they're gonna get that far, obviously. But you know, pick, pick a number, 4%, 5%, whatever, what IRR do you have to get to put money into, whether it's oil exploration, uranium exploration, copper, you know, you name it, your IRR just suddenly went up. And of course your cost of capital from your investors went up. And so they're actually uh, uh, you know, counterproductive in, um, in what they're trying to do. And then the less CapEx that goes into natural resources, the more that um, you know, pr consumer prices are gonna be raging higher. Um, yeah. And Never mind the political effort against those companies to do what you just said and the geological challenges that are just naturally becoming more difficult to find natural resources. You know, good luck finding, you know, a new copper project nowadays. I mean, it's, you know, when was the last time we saw one being developed in a big way? I mean, from the major companies, especially. I mean, it's, 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 um, yeah, it is, those are all important questions. And when I hear, yeah, I mean it's it's tough because when you when you wear your trader's hat and you've had such a big move in commodities, it is natural for you to also uh, become less bullish on it. However, when you look at the long term trends here, I think it's just such an early stage of the cycle that 
this dip that we're seeing in most commodities, especially cyclical commodities here. I mean, look at silver. It was literally a day ago was trading sub $20 an ounce. It might be trading tomorrow sub dollars an ounce because this is absolutely ridiculous. And um, it's just, um, it, it, those are the types of opportunities the market is giving you another chance to build a portfolio, in my opinion, um, in a space. And, uh, and what I think it's going to be a, you know, a big wave of, of, uh, of, of generational wealth being created through tangible assets, which, which is again, another, um, another example of going back to the 1910s, the 1940s and the 1970s, when we had three inflationary decades and the forties was not so much an inflationary decade, given the fact it was more sporadic and not, uh, in terms of the average throughout the decade was actually much lower, but still, you still have real rates deeply negative. And what does that mean? That just means tangible assets actually outperform equity markets. Believe it or not, even housing market outperform the, the equity markets. Um, and so, no, I'm not don't have a strong view on housing market, but certainly intangible assets more like in the commodity space and natural resources and producers and so forth. Um, I do think we're going to enter a, a, a different era here where capital allocation has completely forgotten those parts of the markets that, that will be, uh, will become the new darlings in my opinion of this next, uh, 10 years. So I've got two questions. One, a simple rhetorical question and one, a serious question. Simple rhetorical question is what would be the price of the median home if the 30 year mortgage rate were 10%? Oof. <laughs> um, Glass, right? probably you would think so right but then but then you go back to the 70s and i i agree and it's that's why i don't have a strong view on housing it's because in the 70s um we didn't see that collapse and rates did go up a lot um but certainly the debt problem wasn't as severe so you can have that argument and and uh the one, let me ask you another question because I think that's that's just another way to see it. Okay, it's just it's just because I I, I do see that point, but I also see the other side of it. How much do you think is going to cost to build a, a house ten years from now? From now, a lot more or a lot less? And so, now I would think it's a lot more. And so, um, I struggle with that question a little bit, and that's why I'm not investing in real estate right now. But uh, I'd rather buy, you know, uh, assets that I have a better, um, um, a much higher conviction uh, in regards to where the cycle really is. And the housing market is the economy, as you know very well, too. And uh, it's, I'm not very bullish on the economy. <laughs> so. no. I, was, I was a 12, 13-year-old kid in 1979, 1980. And um, my parents were trying to sell a house. Yeah, it was like a year and a half period. There wasn't even a single looker. Wow. They, they hired a real estate agent. And in those days, like the agent would demand an exclusive arrangement for X number, you know, like six months or something like that. I think they went to three real estate agents and there were no lookers. So um, whatever the you know true price of that house was, yeah. was a lot lower than whatever, um, you know, might've been the official statistic. And I was going to say that was a period where, um, you know, we lived in a neighborhood that had had a number of houses that were being built in uh, the late 60s and early 70s. And all the construction had basically stopped. 
So the cost of building a new house in 1979 was surely higher than whatever price, you know, if my, if my parents were desperate enough to sell the house and found a bid somewhere, yeah. that would be way lower than the cost of building a new one. And when that happens, construction stops. It's not, it doesn't actually prevent the price of the house from dropping. It just stops all new construction. It doesn't make any sense to build. So that's another sector that could have uh, a lot of layoffs coming if, if the Fed really persists and trying to push rates up. Anyway, that was the that was the not serious question. That was the um, no it, it, uh, uh, rhetorical question. The serious question was yeah um, you know taking a look at silver, which was uh, traded under eighteen bucks, if I recall, <laughs> um, not last week. Was that the week before last? Um, today I noticed, and I haven't been on a screen all day, so somebody correct me and tell me that uh, this reversed. But it was up four and a quarter percent when I looked at my screen this morning. Um, and I don't know where it is the rest of the day. Who knows? Maybe it's back down to flat or red ink again or whatever. So leave it aside the level of the silver price and, 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 and other commodities. I mean, silver is not the only volatile commodity right about now. Um, what do you think the volatility, again, leaving aside the price, but the change in price you know, over short periods of time uh, means from a macro perspective and therefore a uh, you know, perspective of investors trying to say, where do I deploy capital? Well, it, it's a good question. I, I think, I think it's, it's the, the issue is those markets have shrank so much and they became so small that the small changes in, in capital dynamics will also have a large impact in prices and much larger than other prices of other asset classes. And so, uh, we're starting this ride now of, I mean, just look at the price of copper, for instance. I mean, it's just been, you know, it was an incredible ride for those who purchased right after elections or so, or a little after um, the COVID recession or so forth. And, um, and then all of a sudden you see a collapse in price so quickly, re-rating at much lower levels, you know, despite all the, the, the constraints that we have in supply side. But, but silver is the same issue. And so, look, for an investor, and this is just my opinion, honestly, but um, I, I, I think that you're, I think we're in a phase of accumulation of, of, those, of those companies and businesses that you think are high quality. For some folks, it's just owning the physical uh, metal, and that's, that's a fine approach. Um, but there are a lot of structural problems in, this, in, this, in the mining industry as well. Um, and so to me, um, that have not been fixed and perhaps those issues have been created over time of, 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 of such a, you know, uh, a very difficult time for, for this industry overall. I mean, just think about the small cap names, how they raise their capital. It's, it's just so difficult. Liquidity is just uh, so dry right now, or, you know, things like, if you look at companies in the major companies in the gold space, I've been saying this um, for a few months now, it's they are not even leading by example. I mean, some of those companies, I don't think I should be naming companies here, but some of them have not purchased. And the, the largest miners, if you just look that up, the largest miners uh, or the largest gold miner in the world today, if you look at their insiders, <laughs> <laughs> they haven't purchased a single share of their company in the last seven years. Seven years. I mean, what is wrong with this industry? I mean, it's it's just insane to me. Even software companies, 
they've been buying some of their stocks. I mean, this is to me a real problem. I mean, it's just, it starts from that, from that top level of management that is not even comfortable with their own businesses. They're not even buying their own shares. Um, so anyways, you can do the research for which one is the largest gold miner in the world <laughs> uh, and figure that out. But, um, you know, going back to your question, it is interesting, though, how uh, yield curving versions. And I go back to that because I've done a lot of work on this. And it's very interesting how um, severe levels of yield curving versions, when you get to those above 50 percent, close to 70 percent levels of, of, of yield curving versions in the Treasury curve, it is very well linked to times when you want to own gold and sell stocks or meaning the gold to S and P 500 ratio. And so sometimes you see gold rising a lot faster. And sometimes you see the equity markets falling, causing the ratio to rise. But there are times like the two thousands or all the way back to the seventies, when you saw both legs of that trade work, I think there's a very high probability we can see here, uh, the same, uh, kind of scenario. So, uh, that that is the type of capital allocation I've been focused, and so it's owning what I think it's going to be asymmetric in this kind of tangible asset uh, opportunity, which I think it's a lot of it. It's going to be in, in precious metals, um, and the other side of it is looking for hedges on on the short side because who knows what the Fed is going to do. But I do think that the equity commodity to equity ratio or the gold to S and P five hundred ratio is at a higher, not lower for the next five to 10 years. So can we tell everybody that Tavi Costa said, short ES, long GC, and equal measure? Oh that's boy, go ahead and question. say that. I mean, I've, I've been- um, uh, the Disclaimer, I, there's no investment <laughs> advice being given here. Not at all, right? Um, but uh, but um, look, I, this is precisely what we're doing. And we've been doing this, this year has worked very well and just, um, allows us, you know, I, I, you know, you know, Quentin very well as well. And Quentin, there's just a lack of folks like Quentin. I mean, it's, I feel like the nineties where you had the early nineties and those periods of times during the initial phase of the tech bubble and so forth, there was also a lack of folks that have really understood the market and could really discern good and bad uh, companies in the space that could actually do well. And then you saw the bubble, everything went up. However, at the very early stages, it was uh, it was sort of uh, an intellectual capital shortage, um, and I think this is very similar to the industry today, especially in exploration. Yes, so it creates a lot of inefficiencies, and so you have companies putting out incredible results and being in going up twenty percent on back of those. You know, and if you think about it, while well, they put out those results, and you think about the probability of having a world class discovery has increased drastically, way more than 20%, but the market is still pricing them at, you know, sub 30 million market cap. So if you're a long-term investor, we talked about accumulation. You know, I want to own 20% of that company because I think that company has a high probability. If I'm wrong about that, you know, that's one company. You know, I want to own 90 businesses that have that probability because that's my long commodities, my long precious metals, my long tangible assets part of the portfolio. So, yeah, I think this is uh, one of the most interesting investment uh, ideas out there. I think you could look at um, the shortage of, you know, competent geologists and mine engineers and those folks 
as kind of a symptom and a part of uh, underinvestment in uh, in the capex generally. I mean, you know, going and studying and committing to get a degree in a in a field like geology or engineering is, is a capital investment. And if if if, if an industry is underinvested, then it's going to get underinvestment from the whole, you know, soup to nuts, including even the talent. We're going to say, why would I want to do that? I'll just go into Wall Street. You know, that looks so much easier. That that yeah. might. It, that actually might be something uh, that would be good to to drill a little deeper into. I, I'd be curious to hear, Tavi. I mean, you've said it many times in different interviews, but the commodities industry, and I know that includes a lot of different industries, but it's been suffering from a lack of investment for decades now. Yeah. What What are the drivers there? What's What's underneath that? Um, what's What's And why is it so prolonged? I mean, obviously there's political headwinds, but is it just that? I mean, what's why is it so capital starved? Well, this political environment is, well, it's always been in place, but certainly right now it's been intensified over the years, I would say in the last decade through the Green Revolution and so forth. It's been a lot worse than prior cycles. And so you can say that that's been more relevant uh, than, than other times when it comes to the impact on CapEx trends. But the, the, the usual thing, if you just strip out the political environment, which is just so difficult, uh, but if you just take that out of the equation, uh, there is just a normal uh, sense of, of, of management conservatism that usually happens when you're just not doing very well. And so if you speak with folks in the, the, the very large major companies right now about buying, let's say, exploration assets, which it is a very much more aggressive way of, of, of using their capital, you know, it's just very difficult for them to wrap their arms around it just because they know it's not going to be generating any free cash flow anytime soon. So how do you justify that to a shareholder that is already getting hurt by the share price of the company only going south, you know, and on top of it, you, um, you know, now you're, you're just putting more money in the ground that it's not going to make any more capital for shareholders. And so that's a big problem for a lot of those companies. And so, so then you see CapEx trends uh, being reduced uh, drastically, and that's kind of what we're seeing right now. But that's, that's a trend that doesn't last, you know, I mean, you, it, it takes a long time to reverse, obviously, but uh, it's not going to be forever. I mean, obviously, we're going to see, you know, the, the crazy... Uh, speculation environment in mining at some point again, where companies are throwing capital, you know, uh, you know, terrible, uh, low quality exploration assets and development assets uh, just because they can. And so, um, but we haven't seen that drive of liquidity. I think there's other things related to this too that maybe uh, have had an, e uh, an impact in those trends to be even worse than other cycles, which has to do with the value versus growth um, dynamic. I mean, we've seen all sorts of capital allocators chasing growth and not value, meaning who cares about profitability? Who cares about um, you know, your bottom line when your top line is growing? Well, all that works until cost of capital rises. And when cost of, cost of capital rises, it, it really, it makes it more difficult to justify ridiculous multiples. It changes the prioritization of investors. Uh, they start looking at profit margins and, 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 and bottom line numbers and fundamentals begin to matter again. 
Um, and so you, thinking from that perspective as well, I mean, that certainly had a, an impact on producers that are value companies. They are most of the times um, companies that have, um, you know, some uh, good profitability, especially in the, uh, in, in the good parts of their cycle. It's hard to say that because miners have done so bad, just bleeding capital for like 25 years uh, that we forget about them being actually profitable. But now they're actually doing very well fundamentally. It's just the price of those companies have not um, really caught up to, uh, uh, to, to their fundamentals. But again, as I said earlier, I mean, there are a lot of structural problems in this industry. I mean, you know, I mean, it's... Uh, you know that the buybacks and and you know share buybacks and um, and any other uh, dividends and so forth. If you aggregate both, they pay more. Uh, they use more capital to return back to shareholders than what they do on capex. And so, you know, those are all. Mm. I think those are all fundamental issues in the industry that will have to change over time. And as liquidity comes in, will will have to change and. So, Again, yeah. Let's interject, isn't that a good sign then that the biggest gold company in the world didn't choose to give capital back to shareholders, but instead is investing it in something that presumably grows its uh, capital and its asset base? Yeah, I mean, right now, I think if you're an investor, you want to be looking for companies that are increasing CapEx because you're in that part of the cycle, especially oil companies. It is one of my metrics that I'm looking for companies that are investing right now. I want companies to invest at this point. This is the time of investing, not five years from now, right now. Um, and right. so, but, but of course, all the investment will be five years from now and very, very little today. Yeah. Of, <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and companies, you know, it, 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 what your point is extremely important. I mean, this is precisely what I think a company should be. That's what I'm doing with our capital from investors is I'm trying to be busy here. I'm trying to buy as much as I can prior to a move, not, not after the move. Um, but um, easier said than done. It's, it's uh, you know, we're, we're working really hard to build a portfolio of ideas, but there are other people that are doing similar ideas too. Um, and uh, in different parts of the industry. And, uh, but, but yeah, you want to be looking for producers that are, um, putting capital to work. I mean, why give money back right now or being buy why buying back your shares right now? When, uh, when you have all this, this incredible opportunities right now to, uh, to be mm -hmm. uh, taken advantage of. So, um, I don't understand it. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is just, I guess, um, corporate behavior that is, you know, it, it also goes through cycles, um, just like the management of companies goes from having majority of folks being geologists versus financial savvy guys and different parts of the cycle as well. That's right. We ask you a completely off the wall question. Um, we talked about the green revolution. I've written a lot about green energy restrictions and how that's added to our woes uh, on a non-monetary force adding to our you know, consumer price woes. Do you think that um, out of all this, and it's much, much worse, I think most of our listeners would know it's much worse in Europe than it is here in terms of the skyrocketing price of energy, real energy shortages. And since um, fertilizer is produced using natural gas, a shortage of natural gas also leads to a shortage of fertilizer. Yeah. Um, much worse in, in uh, Europe than it is here in America. Um, and um, you know, was it Germany announced that they're turning on some coal power plants? 
you know, which would have been inconceivable a year ago. Do you think, here's the off the wall question, do you think there will be a significant and or durable reversal of the, the politics of this so-called green revolution and that people will be, if not in love with, um, you know, resource extraction and energy using industries, at least more tolerant than they had been over the last, uh, you know, 10, 20 years? Well, there's a lot of, you know, ways of answering that question. And some of them, well, initially, I, I do think, you know, this green revolution is, is real, like it or not like it, agree or disagree. Um, there is real capital behind it. And so, you know, uh, I, I find it hard to believe that we're not going to see that continue to move forward. And now, you know, you have, you have issues with countries, you know, let's say things are going to change going forward, uh, where trade balances are going to matter. So you think about countries today, countries that are not commodity exporters, that are commodity importers, let's call China, for instance, right? Um, you know, why is China trying to focus so much on electric vehicles right now? Um, and uh, you know that most of the energy source used to, um, to power those, uh, those vehicles is actually coal. Uh, is that by design or not? It is by Isn't design. Isn't that the irony? Tesla is a great coal-fired car. Yeah, I mean, it is It is most likely by design. They probably don't want to be uh, dependent on oil from other places. If they can get most of their transportation through uh, electric vehicles, you know, meaning they're basically saying, who cares about any of the environmental um, uh, questions that the Western part of the world is, is questioning, perhaps. Um, and... Uh, Again, I'm, this is not a political view at all. I'm just saying from a from a geopolitical stance uh, or standpoint, I think I think some countries may uh, may actually use coal with electric vehicles just to go uh, they'll reduce their uh, dependency on on energies uh, energy commodities like oil, um, and so that might actually happen. In, in many economies, and one of them being China, perhaps India might fall into that as well at some point too. Now, Does India have significant coal resources? I, I'm not an expert of coal. I'm, I, I, don't, I don't invest in it, and so I, I, I don't think I should be speaking about it, but I'm just referring more into a, a sense of, uh, of balance of powers and in and, and economies and how uh, we may see uh, you know, countries that actually depend a lot on certain commodities uh, may may uh, create you know changes in terms of how they uh, they source their own energy um, to uh, through different ways just to uh, reduce dependability of of or reliability of other um, partners that they currently have. You know, maybe China with Russia, maybe China with Saudi Arabia. Uh, maybe in a different position five years from now. And, and they're very much aware of that. And so, you know, how do they avoid that? So thinking, wearing their hats and, and saying, well, maybe coal is an alternative. Uh, if we can have electric vehicles being powered by coal, why do I need Saudi Arabia? Um, I'm just, you know, yeah. It's just, uh, it's just an idea. Switch, switch to what you have domestically and then you don't have to rely on uh, unreliable imports from somebody who may not like you and the politics may shift. Right. And, 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 and maybe you can have a mix of the two as well, but, but now, you know, oil is such a, 
uh, strategic uh, commodity today and has always been a strategic commodity that it's uh, and most uh, things are are um, use oil as as a source of energy and so it's um, you know we we all know the 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 complexities of of partnering with uh, uh, oil exporters out there and it's um, you know it's becoming harder and harder and the world is becoming more and more deglobalized and um, you know we may see some changes like that I mean you know and, and so to your question about green. Um, to a certain extent, I think we're going to see a big changes in terms of uh, of of those green revolution ideas. But uh, yeah, I come back from uh, from coal to reduce the the, the dependency of unreliability of oil. That that can actually happen. But I think we'll start with China first, and maybe uh, it could move to other areas. I hadn't thought about China and, and doing that in that way, but that totally fits uh, a theme I've been developing, which is. Um, you know, as you said, deglobalization and, you know, re-onshoring or nearshoring, uh, like in semiconductors, for example, what company in their right mind would want to be relying on Taiwan right now for critical components just because yeah. of the geopolitics of it, right? Um, and then you have sort of the general economic nationalist trends rising, you know, the general tendency towards tariffs and certain political jurisdictions are no longer acceptable or politically tolerable or whatever. And yeah. so everything tends to be pulled back on shore, including energy. So if you have huge coal reserves, as I think China does, and I know the US does, then from a geopolitics standpoint, that totally makes sense. Yeah, narratives are always created, but sometimes, you know, and, and, and some of them are correct, like the, the whole narrative or the whole idea of, um, you know, poking fun on electric vehicles because they are, uh, actually using coal as a source of energy is, is, a, is, a, is, a real, is a real thing, right? But what if they are happening by design? <laughs> so, you know, and, uh, you know, some economies are not really thinking about the same way some other Western economies really are. And so I think China is doing that by design. Um, but uh, I think Jeremy, a lot of Americans, just to interject, yeah. I think a lot of Americans who have been cheering Tesla for the last X number of years actually believe that electricity is the source of the energy yeah and don't understand that if the energy source and energy distribution vehicle yeah. and they think that, you know the energy comes from the electricity and they don't move up any further in the stream to say where does electricity come from yeah there was, there was some um political cartoon uh from around the time of uh the turn of the millennium that uh, showed somebody at some sort of protest and had a sign i don't know if it was a cartoon if it was a real picture and anyway, this person had a sign at a political rally and it said, who needs oil? We ride the bus. Mm. And I, I definitely think there is a contingency of people that they're thinking literally is that. Yeah. And, um, you know, God bless them. But uh, well, contrary to China, I don't I don't think I don't think Germany is doing that by design. I think they're just not thinking through the whole thing. Uh, but uh, so I agree with you. Um, and uh, I, I know of people here that are um, that also drive electric vehicles absolutely clueless of where the energy uh, is is actually coming from and so it's 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 it is a this it's definitely happening in areas like the US and other parts of Europe um, and um, but yeah but I think there are some parts of the world that is actually being uh, that you know this is a, a well-planned idea this is not um, 
you know, it, it's not what's, what's, uh, there's no comparison to, uh, to what's going on in Europe and the U S but, uh, that's my two cents on this. So it's a tough question. I, uh, I do think institutional capital will, uh, continue to chase, uh, those, uh, those commodities. I mean, just, I, you know, the question I get the most, which I, you know, I have such a bullish view on, on commodities, but I struggle with just one of them that is, is just, I get so often this question asked, you know, I talked to an, uh, you know, a, a capital allocator and majority of the questions is, are, uh, are you guys invest, investing in lithium as well? And I, my goodness, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think there's so many people clueless about the, the complexity of, of, of the lithium business in general. Uh, and, uh, and I think a lot of people are going to lose a lot of capital in that part of the industry. Yeah, kind of like the marijuana industry for you know, different reasons. Um, I was just thinking about, um, since a lot of capital is chasing the, the green stuff, and I guess that would take the form of ESG investments. Um, just occurs to me that there should be, or that one could measure an ESG to um, the brown tech spread in terms of expected yields since there are some institutional investors that have a mandate that has to be ESG. If one said, I don't care about ESG per se, I care about overall absolute return, then yeah. one could find higher returns in non-ESG related things because some investors are restricted and therefore they won't be bid up as high and therefore you get a better return. I wonder if somebody publishes or could publish an ESG spread that, um, you know, how much more can we get if we look outside the ESG and then how, how wide can that spread get before the return is so attractive that it just pulls more capital in? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, this whole, it's just so new what's going on. Uh, the SEC is going after uh, funds that are supposedly allocating capital in ESG space quite heavily. And so you have to be very careful to what you define as, as ESG, ESG investments because there's a lot of gray areas. And a lot of people are getting in trouble for that. Um, it is right, not what right. we invest, but but I, I think, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of uh, funds um, creating a lot of issues in that front. I, you know, your point is 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 valid about about the yield uh, chasing. There is a I've done some research on this because it's I think there's so much financial engineering happening nowadays which is a sign of how speculative the the the, the macro environment really is um that you can just look back with the buybacks um you know companies doing extreme levels of buybacks and dividends and so forth and you would think that a company nowadays doing significant amounts of 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 share buybacks uh would actually be delivering some or creating some value to their uh, performances, but amazingly, uh, in the last three years, if you look at the top 100 companies doing those buybacks, they're barely making any money. In fact, they're actually, or I should say, they're actually underperforming the equal weighted index of the S&P 500, which is fascinating because they spent over 89% of their cash flow uh, buying back shares, not investing in their own businesses just mm -hmm. buying back their own shares at ridiculous prices. I mean, this is finance 101. You don't buy your stock back if the multiples are high. 
you buy it when it's low, but you know, I guess everyone skipped that class and everyone's just buying shares at record well, multiples. The, the other class though is um, the agency <laughs> dilemma uh, that says, um, suppose you had a CEO and CFO whose compensation is tied to the share price. And um, you know, the company can borrow at uh, you know, 2% and their, uh, and, and, you know, their, their dividend yield is, is 2.5%. And they're going to personally take home a big payday by driving the share price up. What are they going to do from a behavioral finance perspective? Yeah. Um, and of course, it's not their money. So if the company goes out of business, they got their payday and they move on. And then if it works, well, hey, you know, heads I win, tails you lose. Um, you know, does that explain the uh, the phenomenon? It it's a real problem because, um, you know, you're seeing. I mean, the, if you guys looked at the list of CEOs leaving right now, I mean, resigning or coming up with all sorts of excuses to uh, to exit their role. I mean, it it's it really is fascinating what's going on. I mean, it's like every day there's a a, a popular CEO pretty much um, uh, you know resigning or or exiting their role, and it's a uh, Again, it's a, something that happened before. There's not a lot of data on this, but the data I found, it goes back to the prior times of before the, the global financial crisis and uh, was a very good leading indicator. And, um, you know, those are all things to think about it just because CEO confidence is low. Uh, you're not seeing them really reinvest money into their businesses. And so where are we going to get this productivity to get the, because that's the biggest, you know, I guess, question to my thesis is if we get back to some sort of uh, technological advancement that changes the whole environment in a way of we start creating more units of growth relative to units of debt, you know, something we haven't seen in a very, very long time. I am very wrong about my gold thesis. I'm very wrong about commodities. I'm very wrong about tangible assets. And I need to be very careful. I just don't think that's going to happen, especially when you're seeing, you know, companies like I just said using 89% of their cash flow to buy back shares rather than invest in in their own businesses. And so, I don't know. I, I can I, give uh, you an assurance on your thesis. If your thesis comes down to that, um, I follow something called marginal productivity of debt. Mm -hmm. so it's not you know total debt or debt to GDP, but rather changing GDP divided by changing debt, or for every new dollar of debt, how much GDP does it add? And you should want to see that number above one. That would be a really good sign. You borrow a dollar, you add a dollar 20 worth of GDP, that would be a good thing, right? Well, that number has been in secular decline since at least 1950. And I only say at least 1950 because that's the oldest data that I've been able to get my hands on. So I'm looking around the internet and the St. Louis Fed has something called FRED which is probably one of the best macro data, you know, raw data sites out there. And if you plot marginal productivity of debt, as I do from time to time, it's it's been in a secular decline with a lot of volatility, but it's a clear line down, yeah. which means that, um, you know, relative to debt, uh, you know, productive investment is is in continual decline. And so um, you, you, if your thesis comes down to that, I think your thesis is very safe. <laughs> yeah, I Different. mean it. I mean, just look at the the so-called growth stocks, right? The Fang stocks, the Facebooks, and 
and um, and Apples and Amazons and Netflixes and Googles of the world, they're not growing anymore in real terms. In fact, this was the first quarter in two decades that um, they've had a, a contraction in in real growth in revenues. And so, you know, if you're not if you're a company, you're not growing at call it ten percent. I mean, you're just not keeping up with inflation. That's that's it is what it is. I mean, it's it's just a fact of uh, of of what's what's going on right now, what we're facing. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I don't even know why we're calling them growth stocks in the first place. To be quite honest, <laughs> you know, just to pick on two of those I've written about Facebook from the perspective of platform governance. As a, as a platform company, the single most important issue is governance. And you know, from the perspective of, let's say 2016, you would look at it and say, how could Facebook possibly lose? They've got it locked up. The network effect is so powerful yeah. that um, everybody you know and want to be friends with is on Facebook. You have to be on Facebook, that's it. And somehow between the Trump election and then COVID, they decided that governance meant um, becoming the arbiters of truth. And if you say something on certain topics, including election and uh, um, COVID, they put a little sticker over your post that says, maybe Keith is full of, you know, you know what, click here to find out the real truth. And then they started blocking people and saying, okay, you're not allowed to post for 24 hours, you know, and all these things. And, um, you know, completely snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Just an incredible thing. Netflix, um, I wrote this in, uh, I don't know, maybe 2017. And I argued that um, the marginal utility of, or, you know, the utility of the next hour of video content is zero. We've gotten to the point where capital is so cheap in the video production business that they're producing so much of it. And at that time, Netflix was, was floating the idea of maybe we could put ads, you know, or, or make people pay a higher tier to get video and the resounding was like 75%, 80% of their customer base said, absolutely not. We'd cancel our Netflix if you tried to do these things. And I said, there's no, no utility to that anymore. I remember in the late 1970s when, you know, you get bored of TV and you say, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm going to go play in the woods because there literally was nothing interesting on. Today we've reached the point where they produce so much video. Essentially you could, you could waste a lifetime watching it all. Um, I mean, most of it's trash problems, half the problem, but you, you, know, you can spend a lifetime watching it and never keep up with the rate that they're producing it. So you've got one company that shot itself in the foot and the other company that, um, you know, overproduced itself into such a glut that, um, you know, unlike oil, video content is there forever. And, um, and what do you do, but, you know, relicense it and rebadge it and repackage it and recolorize it and, but I, but anyways, uh, not to take away from your broader theme that I think all of the so-called growth stocks may not be growing, um, you know, in this in this uh, new phase of the economy, you know, call it. Uh, so uh, Jim Brown is on our board, um, just posted an article to uh, the link, link, Substack LinkedIn, I forget where he posted it. And he basically said, are we in a recession? Or are we in a banana? And, um, it was because, and he was talking about an economist, I don't remember the guy's name now, under the Carter administration, that Carter didn't want to admit there was a recession. And he thought it would hurt his chances in the election. And so the guy said, oh, well, you know, if I'm not allowed to say, and he was told, you're not allowed to say the word recession. He said, I'm going to say the word banana. 
Jim in his article was talking about, well, I think we're in a banana, but but he talks about the same thing you talk about, that there's, you know, employment is a lagging indicator. NBER is going to wait until all the data is settled and revised and finalized and refinalized before they declare it, and by which time it's probably already over, so it's too late. You can't, you know, you can't invest based on that declaration of recession, right? Um, anyway, just uh, just a couple of random thoughts based on, uh, uh, on what you just said. Well, um, and to be in a, in a place where it should be favorable for growth stocks, you need to be back to this kind of disinflationary environment, which again, it's, it can be arguable, arguably uh, not the right term uh, that we went through the last uh, three decades, given the fact that a lot of things went up in prices and a lot of things were inflated, right? Especially financial assets and other things like medical costs and college tuition. But in general, in general, I, I think the the disinflationary forces maybe outweigh the 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 uh, the inflationary problems that we had in the last uh, 30 years but now that's changing in a big way part of it is to do with the natural resources industries um and when you really dig deep uh, on you know uh, let's just say the fed you know decides to stop raising rates and you know, does anybody really think copper will care about that or oil will care about that? I mean, where do people think the price of those commodities will go to if that happens? I mean, if you have not fixed the, the, the supply issues at all, production is not nowhere close to where it was for many of the metals and many of the uh, other uh, energy commodities and so forth nowhere close to where it was at prior peaks. We're nowhere close in terms of capital spending as well. So how do we, you know, if we're not fixing those fundamental problems, how in the world everything else in terms of inflation will be resolved in the next five to 10 years? Well, it's probably not gonna be, get resolved. And so um, I don't understand why there isn't a lot more government support towards natural resource companies on trying to figure out a way of creating facilities and programs to help them to uh, really uh, find new resources, but also uh, increase production significantly over time. But I don't know, I think we're kind of so far away from that, that it's uh, um, just makes me so bullish about this whole situation because it's, uh, uh, I do think it's a, it's a sustainable move to the upside. It's, it's not uh, a very different than financial assets and, and growth stocks that will be uh, much more challenged in, uh, in an inflationary uh, setting. No, no, and if anything, governments are not only not helping, but actively hurting, right? <laughs> denying licenses, denying permits. Every once in a while, you get a politician of a certain uh, party, which shall remain nameless, who says, Oh, but if, if they drill more, then people will just burn more gas. So it's not going to help. And um, you can't drill your way out of a petroleum shortage. Yeah. And you know, when they say these things, and you're like, um, did you just say that aloud? <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, one thing just to kind of, uh, and we're running out of time here, but to, to wrap up and touch a theme that's near and dear to, to my heart and to monetary metals um, is that uh, you know, the distinction that you're making, I think, kind of implicitly, but I want to call attention to it, between just betting on the price of owning some metal versus investing in productive 
enterprises that are that are working to solve you know problem that our civilization faces and uh you know the idea that investing is, is financing production is not just a bet and of course if you get it right the investment you make in the producer will be geared significantly to the the price of the commodity so if the commodity doubles uh and you pick the right producer at the right time in the cycle you're getting a lot more than a double um not to mention some dividend yield along the way hopefully um and uh anyway that's that's a that's a theme that we write a lot about and um I think this is uh, you know resonates with our uh, you know, our, our our viewership, our listener base as well. Yeah, I don't own a lot of the producers and the larger companies in the space, but uh, as a as a fund, we don't you know we try to specialize in a niche, which is more exploration and parts of the development phase of the industry. But I wouldn't short the producers. I mean, I you know I think they they can do very well here and. Um, you know, liquidity comes in. I mean, people are, you know, I would say majority of fund managers and politicians can barely put two sentences on mining. So what do you think they're going to do with capital first and foremost? You know, it's going to go to, you know, the barracks and new months of the world. I mean, it's, it's just the very first, uh, um, you know, they're going to be the first ones to really benefit from this. And that's absolutely fine. That's just how the industry works, how cycles work. And, um, and then things will go fit into the other parts of the industry. And so another thing that we've been very focused, especially on the exploration side is a lot of times in other cycles that we've seen that drove a lot of capital were very, very large and significant discoveries of, of a mineral. So let's say, you know, every few decades you have, uh, you know, a major discovery of gold that drives a lot of attention to the industry and then capital starts flowing into the space. That may happen, you know, I mean, we're trying to do that. I and mean, I know other majority of the majors are not doing that and the majority of people are not doing that, but we're trying to accomplish that. That can drive some capital as well. So I'm just trying to think about what drives liquidity uh, into into the mining space in general, not just exploration or production, but the whole industry. And there are a lot of ways. Is the value to growth transition? Um, is is the situation with uh, focus of governments having to uh, pause most of their actions against uh, natural resource industries? And um, is uh, I mean, there's so many ways. I mean, it's institutional capital chasing green revolution. Uh, institutional capital chasing gold rather than owning treasuries. I mean, that's a very real possibility. Um, you know, why own treasuries when you have gold? Um, I, I don't understand. I really much rather own gold than treasuries personally, but, <laughs> um, but that's just my, my two cents. And I think a lot of countries will figure that out soon. I mean, I think, I think we're seeing that already in, in um, already unfolding, but. That's the bull case for gold right there is that the treasury has insufficient yield even now. And um, it's the credit paper of a uh, counterparty so profligate that it makes drunken sailors look conservative by, by comparison. And to own the treasury, you're, you're lending them your money. Um, yeah. Right money to do that. I mean, people make some very intelligent cases for owning treasuries, especially right now, if you think the economy is going to have a downturn and, and maybe the Fed will be forced to not raise rates as much. And so 
in the last you know 30 years or so we've had treasuries rallying in those environments and treasuries are kind of rallying recently and and that's a fine way to play it but uh my my two cents on this is that it amazes me how no one is paying attention on the 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 size of of issuances that we're seeing in treasury in the treasury markets particularly in in the in the back end of the curve meaning the 20 the 10 year the 30 year yields are you know are basically we're seeing a flood of issuances of those to fund fiscal stimulus or i.e the inflation act um and so i mean this is ridiculous i mean it's it's uh and so the the the, the while you have rare and issues with supply constraints in the commodity space you have this supply a flood of supply in 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 treasuries happening not just treasuries it's happening german bonds it's happening with jgbs and the list is long of of developed economies doing the same uh but the fed is not purchasing those uh to the same degree that was before and in fact is letting those run off now in the balance sheet and so well they should be doing a lot more than they're doing but uh they're not buying as much as they were before let's just agree there but um and so it was uh, uh, to me. It's it, it's it's a hard case for owning treasuries, and so the signal that we're not seeing of treasuries really rallying with the deceleration of growth, maybe has to do with the supply side, not not the demand side of the equation. Right. I think that, uh, and I would be in this camp. Um, you know, seeing treasuries as a good trade, and I think yields will go lower, which means treasury prices will go higher. But the longer term, if you really want to take a macro view, is that, you know, why lend to the U.S. government? Can you think of anything more crazy than that? Um, I mean, it's not at a sheer, at a sheer madness other than, man, that's sure been a good trade and it's worked. I've used this, uh, it's becoming a tired cliche joke for me. I've used this several times in other contexts, which is, so the guy is at a cocktail party and the guy next to him is a psychiatrist. So he's, oh, you're a psychiatrist. Oh yeah, my brother's kind of crazy. He thinks he's a chicken. And the psychiatrist gets all serious and says, wait, is he, is he seeing uh, professional help for this? Well, yeah, we, we would send him to a shrink, but we need the eggs. <laughs> so, you know, the treasury to, to lend to the US government is completely insane, but it's been a good trade. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's. Um, How can you sum up today's macro world, other than uh, and sum up this uh, episode of the podcast, other than to say something like that? I don't know. That's, that's probably a good place to end it for us. We've we've gone a, a little bit long. Tavi, appreciate your time. This has been a great episode. I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. And uh, you set yourself up nicely for a follow up uh, with everything you said about leading and lagging indicators. So we'll have to have you back on, you know, six to nine months from now. Uh, to see to see where we are in the cycle. So thank you so much again. It's been great. Um, look forward to having you back on. Well, guys, thanks for having me. Great questions. I enjoyed this conversation and look forward to be, uh, be back here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming. I had a lot of fun chatting with you. My pleasure, Keith. Alrighty, take care. Take care. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions. 
and our Gold Financing Simplified. Reliable financing, denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.